The expression firing on all cylinders dates back to the early 1900s and refers to the function of the internal combustion engine. This expression poetically applies to successful businesses as well. Each department must operate at peak performance, and the couplings between departments need optimization as well. In this episode, I interview business coach John Dwoskin about a variety of topics related to entrepreneurship and how to engineer a successful organization. John, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks, Kyle. Tell me a little bit about yourself and your business. I'm a business coach. Um, I'm an author, uh, I'm a speaker, and I'm a podcaster. And I, I work with companies, I work with people, I work with companies who are successful and stuck and want to get to the next level, and I help them get there. And whether it is, you know, working with them on, you know, a whole multitude of things, whether it's a solopreneur, a Fortune 100 or 500 company and everything in between, working with C-level execs, owners, managers, and salespeople to, to help them grow their business Many of the people that I work with are stuck, and I, I have the ability to give them the space to evolve, to raise their level of consciousness, to raise their frequency, to hear, begin seeing what I'm seeing and getting them unstuck, giving them tools to implement into their business right away. Are there common reasons you see frequently for why businesses are stuck? I think people just need to raise their level of awareness and their consciousness and their frequency. I think people get complacent and they don't, they're not thinking ahead. They're just thinking too in the moment. And, and I'm all about being present, but they're, they're not thinking about their people, their vision, their training, um, how to evolve their people, where to invest in their people. They're not thinking about marketing effectively. You know, so there's all these moving parts in, in today's world especially in a post-COVID world, you need to be way more detailed into everything that you do because not only are people working in offices, but they're working from home and this hybrid flex you know, world is not going away anytime soon. And so really being tight in so many of those things and making sure that you have a clear vision, making sure that your people are trained, understanding what drives your people, understanding, making sure that everybody has a business plan that is specific and measurable. And and I mean, the list goes on and on, but it's, it's really just kind of diving deep into all the bedrock things that need to be examined so you can really break it down to the simple. Can you summarize what the role of a professional business coach is? Where does your value get added? My value gets added because I see things that people aren't seeing. I hear things that people aren't hearing. I, I can see things that are, the way I explain it, hidden in plain sight. But the clients, the companies, they can't see it. And I'm a big believer that the same level of consciousness that got you to where you are can't get you to where you need to be. And so through my coaching, I'm able to raise people's consciousness, provide them ideas, give them insight to get to clearer messages, more clarity, a deeper understanding to really be an observer of your business and, and almost watch it like a movie and then dive in and provide all of the details needed on a consistent basis so you can grow. The shelf life of a client of mine, for example, will do a three to five hour deep dive and then do 15 minutes a week or 30 minutes every other week. 
is a typical client because the shelf life is two weeks of what we do and strategize and they go out and execute and then they, they're they ready for more to take it to the next level. What does that process really involve from the person's point of view? If they're already a busy entrepreneur, they've got to make time for something. What does it take to really get ramped up and commit to a process? We got to commit to change and evolution, right? And you've got to be ready to do the work. And 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 if you're ready and you're in alignment to do the work, especially to get back into alignment, it requires you to take the time to do the work. And so you've got to be mentally ready. You've got to surrender. You've got to allow somebody to, to guide you and ask you questions and make you think differently and raise your frequency and vibration from where it is. So that's really important. And so, um, but outside of that, what it takes is three to five hour deep dive and then 15 minutes a week or 30 minutes every other week. You know, the way I work with my clients too, so they can sit back and get coached. I can type almost as fast as I can talk. So I take full notes and if they want, uh, record the Zoom call that we're on or the phone call that we're on so they can have a, a history of it. So when, by the time I hang up with a client, I press send and I've emailed them everything we've talked about in real time, the action items they have to do for the week. So I do my best to take the thinking out of it and give them the exec, you know, the, the action plan that they can execute on immediately. And what's the balance between quantitative and qualitative advisement? Well, I, I look at everything as far as how can you quantify, right? And so I guarantee everything I do from a quality standpoint, but you can quant, I, I'd like to break everything down into how can you quantify that? How do you, can you quantify your time? How can you quantify if you do this, um, then, you know, you'll open up this much space. How can you quantify if you do this, you'll make this much more money. How can you quantify always breaking down into how that affects the business, the bottom line and your pocketbook. But I think it's really important. It's an interesting question because I don't think when I, when I talk about, you know, I'll say to clients, how do you quantify that? They'll say, well, what do you mean? Well, I'll say, well, let's quantify it. Let's quantify if you save four minutes a day and that's 24 hours a year and you have 24 hours now to spare, what can you do with it? And then how would you quantify that? And then how would it affect your bottom line? So it's looking at all of those elements that are really, really important that a lot of people just kind of glance over. I've encountered some businesses, I guess, particularly if you're an online business that have a strong sense of their sales funnel and a great amount of tracking and metrics around it. You know, they know how many people are visiting the site, the conversion rate to fill out a form, uh, how fast the salesperson responds to the form, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, if you want to invest, you can get all these numbers. Ultimately, is that where all organizations need to head? Metric-based? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, numbers don't lie. And so absolutely. I mean, I think if you're not running your business based on metrics and specific and measurable leading activities that everybody needs to do um, and forecasting out three, six, nine, 12 months, then you're going to have a really hard time growing. And I think a lot of companies that don't do that, um, that just kind of take a laissez-faire go with the flow, they're not going to accelerate or grow or see the headwinds in front of them as much. Because when you have metrics and leading specific and measurable activities, then you can say, wait, the headwind that's happening right now is really going to affect my next three to six, nine months, not only with sales, but 
with management, with leadership, with this, with, with et cetera. So how are we going to pivot and how are we going to, you know, keep moving and growing the business and where do we need to adjust? So to me, it's absolutely critical that every company has some level of metrics, standards, leading specific and measurable activities. Everybody in the business should have a business plan with all of those numbers. When you're on an engagement and helping a company identify a particular problem or bottleneck or something like that, how often is technology involved in that issue? It really depends. That's a good question. A lot of times people just get in their own way. Technology is just something that I don't necessarily think is typically always the problem, but people getting in their own way is the problem. And so if people don't have tight systems and processes and clarity of what they're doing, then a lot of times they pick the wrong technology to help them because they're not getting to the root of really what needs to be done. When they know and have clarity on what they need to do, right? I'll use something simple like a CRM, right? Because a CRM, somebody can say, okay, well, we need something to manage, you know, relationship management for salespeople, track calls, pull lists. Okay, so I have complete clarity of what I need to do. So now I'm just using this for an example. Okay, so we choose to use Pipedrive or Salesforce because it fits our type of salesperson and what they need to accomplish within a CRM. And now, because of these are our metrics and this is how we measure things, we can actually pull and extract you know, from a Salesforce to make sure that we're in alignment with what our metrics are. So the, the technology, I think, supports a lot of times what they're trying to do or enhances and accelerates something because of the technology can do it faster. But if a company isn't clear in their message, what they want to do, where they want to go, how they want to grow, and that's why sometimes you hear, oh, we use, we put this technology, but it was the wrong technology. Yeah, because in many cases, if not most, they didn't identify exactly what the technology was going to be used for in its simplest, uh, most specific form. Well, I don't know. I mean, you can form your own opinion about this, but I'm of the opinion that we can blame Silicon Valley in general for part of that. There's been a lot of venture capital investment saying, don't worry about revenue, just go build something cool. If that's where my investment came from and that's my edict, uh, how do I function in that world? Yeah, you know, I create, I started an internet company when I was 23. I'm 49 now. So in 1995, I started an internet company that I sold to the largest internet professional service company in the world, a company called US Web. So I was part of that dot-com boom and, um, and it was great and it was exciting. But I remember the, the, you know, the years of, of Super Bowl commercials where you didn't understand what one company did. Right? So they were like, you know, the Silicon Valley commercials were like, wait, what do they do? I mean, you just look at a company like eToys that had a, you know, a multi-billion dollar valuation, you know, over Toys R Us back in the day. And I could point to, to many other companies. And, you know, it was, it, and, and that model today, I don't think, you know, unless you have a lot of money to burn works because you've, or unless you beta test, hey, this is a problem in the market. This is what people need. And this is what people are willing to, um, are willing to pay for and, and they will buy the product. And so I, I don't think it's, it's very risky, especially because today technology and the way things are evolving, so are, it's all changing so fast that, you know, you, you don't have time to build something and wait 18 months. It's just because it'll, it'll, it'll have obsolescence in it by then. So how do I do long-term planning in that world? Long-term planning in the tech world? 
Well, or I mean, tech is the one I know best, but any world that can turn over in 18 months like you describe. Yeah. Yeah. Any advice for success? I, you set a lot of short-term goals and you, revert, you, you, you do your best to say, okay, you know, there's, there's a law of proximity where, you know, people can only look out so far with pain, right? They can say, I have pain, but this is only how far I can kind of see out. So if you're telling me that you're going to solve a problem that I'm going to have in five years, I can't feel or see that as clearly as I can. Tell me how you're going to solve a problem I have in the next three to six, max 12 months. And so I think a company needs to look at that and say, okay, what's a universal problem in, in, in this company, in this uh, company, in this type of vertical, et cetera, and say, where can we make a difference and where can we make a difference sooner than later? And do you find most entrepreneurs are able to answer that question? It, maybe they just haven't asked it yet, or does it take some uh, planning and brainstorming to even find the path? I think it takes a ton of brainstorming. I think it takes a ton of brainstorming to get to the simple, right? It was Mark Twain. If I had more time, I would have written a shorter book. Or Winston Churchill, if I had more time, I'd write a shorter speech. It takes more time. It takes a lot more time to break it down to the simple of what people really need. I think people are more distracted than ever before. And so the more complicated something is, the harder it is for people to grasp, right? I can point to a lot of technology that companies use that nobody internally, a high majority of people don't actually use it because it's too complicated to use. So I think the people that can break things down to simple, right? And, and sell the simple, those are going to be the technology companies that are going to thrive um, over the next decade. We're looking at a, at a pre-COVID study of by the year 2030, 85% of the jobs that exist don't exist today. And technology, COVID accelerated, that technology is going to continue to accelerate and advance it, in my opinion. And so there's going to be even more distraction because there's so much coming at us. We need to, entrepreneurs need to, people in the tech space specifically, Break things down, I think, to a in any business to a kindergarten to second grade level because people will want, need to understand something. There's something called the curse of knowledge, which is on a scale from one to 10, sometimes people, you know, articulate and try to sell things at a 10. And it's too much for people. They don't buy at a 10. People buy at a one or a two. And when you get to that three, four, five, six, seven, eight area, people begin to zone out. And so sometimes I see these technology companies and they do so many things and they have so many messages and they have so many that, but it's like, Hey, what's the one thing that you're going to do to solve a problem? Show me success, show me failure, show me a plan of action and show me how it can simply be trained to the people in my company so we can use it to save time, get rid of distractions and make more money and make things easier for people. A common theme I've seen in some of the entrepreneurs I've had the opportunity to work with is, you know, not naming names, but by and large, a significant percent of them were trying to bite off more than they could chew. They had a bigger vision from where they were at at the current point in their company. Is part of the process to simplicity just scaling back? Is that a common attribute you see? Well, I think, yeah. I mean, I think part of simplicity is saying, okay, what's the one thing that people need? What's the two things that people need? What are the three things that people need? All right, so those, the one or two need to be the driving force of it. And then if there's other tentacles that something else does, 
that populate and that can, you can extract, absolutely. But if it's too big, if you can't explain it to a kindergartner or to a second grader where they understand it, you're too big. And how do you create a feedback loop to learn from these insights? You ask a lot of questions and you ask a lot of people and you listen. So you say to a bunch of um, current clients, hey, what do you think about this? And you look at their reaction and you hear their reaction, you feel their reaction, and then you pay attention, just paying really, really close attention. And you'll hear, the people will tell you, you know, you get people to beta tested, you tell strangers, you tell this, and, and, and you listen to the reaction and you watch how they, how they either get it or they don't. And so the ones that you say, oh, that's easy, I get it, then you're onto something. And then you dig more questions. And so you're looking for those key kind of words that they're, you know, giving you that are giving you signs that this is something that, hey, people are going to not only use this product, but through word of mouth is going to grow. You know, if you look at any good piece of software, it's word of mouth that has it growing, right? Oh, you got to use this. You got to use this. I think, I think PipeDrive is a good example of that. Like, I don't think I've ever even seen a marketing piece from PipeDrive, but people refer it all the time because a good piece of simple technology that can go a long way gets used a lot. There's an app I use called Todoist, T-O-D-O-I-S-T. It's a, it's a great to-do list, right? It's called Todoist. It's great. I've referred it to, I mean, tons and tons of people. And I got it because somebody referred it to me. And so it's creating a product that's so easy that people talk about it. And then that's how it grows. And so you have to think, okay, what are people going to say about this product from a brand standpoint when I leave the room? And can somebody, when I leave the room, be an ambassador and say, and can they articulate it, the product in a sentence or two to activate somebody to take action and buy the technology as well? Because those are my ambassadors, the users. And if they'll talk about it, I know I have a good thing. If they won't and they don't get it, then, I, then I'm in trouble. Beta testing and user feedback makes total sense. I would want to really maximize on my investment there to make sure when I decide I want to roll out big with my go-to-market, I'm going to be best positioned for it. But if I'm building a product, I'm also enthusiastic about it. And uh, maybe I'm a little worried I'm going to cherry pick the beta testers who are enthusiastic and not hear the overall picture. Do you have any rule of thumb or insights about what product success looks like? When do I know I've completed my beta? You know, that's that's a question that I think it really depends on the, the product and where you're at, right? So there's different stages of the beta. One is when you get to a point where people say, that's easy. I'd buy that. What would you pay for it? I'd pay for this. And you start to see kind of an average amount that people would pay and, an av- and, and a way that people start to really realize, oh, this is pretty easy. I get it. I totally get it. This really will help me solve a problem. And I know a lot of other people that this will solve a problem. If people continue to question it, then you've got a problem. Makes sense. Yeah. Well, in the technology world, a common vision for how you start a company is you find a, a co-founder and it's two people in a garage. They invent something and off it goes from there. At what point should someone think about engaging with a business consultant when going from hobby into lifelong venture? Yeah, I think that's a good question. And I'm not saying this because I'm a business coach, <laughs> but right away. Because, you know, if you're, if you're a sailor, for example, 
and the wind is off a smidge, you're going to go, and you don't know it, you're going to go in the wrong direction. Same with an airplane, right? You got to know where you are. And a lot of times people can see in front of you when that you can't see, right? A lot of times I find that happens um, a lot, right? I like, for example, when I'm working with clients, you know, I can see beyond their sight. I can see. So I take them beyond their sight. And you need somebody who can do that with you and say, okay, here's your business plan. Here's how you're being held accountable. Okay, you can talk to me. I can dissect every element of the business with you. You know, and without that mentorship and coaching, you know, can you build a successful business? 100%. Can you do it faster with a coach? 100%. Where are some of the areas that people might need help with that they're not even cognizant of as they start their journey? Business planning, budgeting, org charts, one-year org chart, three-year org chart, five-year org chart, training, creating a training library, recruiting, who to recruit for, when to recruit, what the vision is, messaging, values of the company, how you're going to grow and retain managers, salespeople, leadership, what you're going to do on a quarterly basis uh, to make sure that you're on track, how you're going to sell what your message is, what your value prop is, what's your why, what's going to um, resonate with people, how are you going to articulate every element of a cold call, warm call, center of influence call, how are you going to create messages to call uh, that get people calling you back because 80% of all calls don't get called back, how do you build a sales force to sell your product, how do you create a marketing funnel so people are constantly... Uh, continually marketing and calling prospects. How are you creating a full marketing campaign? How is that marketing campaign going to be memorable? Is it going to be memorable? What do you got to do on each social platform? How you got to do it? How often? What are the nuances? How are you going to grow your voice? How are you going to raise your culture? Just to name a few. Yeah, great list of considerations. I'd love to zoom in on one. Uh, I don't know if you have a favorite or a story that complements one well, or or if not, I could pick one. Um, Pick one. I'd rather have you pick one. Well, let's talk about leadership then. If you're thinking about a five-year plan and and I'm kind of hedging on the growth of my company, I know I need to invest there, but I'm not clear on how I even get started thinking about it. Yeah. You create a five-year plan, reverse engineer it to a four-year plan, reverse engineer it to a three-year, to a two-year, to a one-year, to a to a month by month, to a quarter by quarter, to a week by week to the day. And you reverse engineer so you can always, and then like we talked about earlier, have the metrics and the leading activities for you and everybody within the company so you can then begin to track your progress. And then what you what you measure and you track evolves and grows. And so at the end of every week, you're studying, right? Because you should be a student of your calendar. I teach people all the time as a business coach how to, about time management and how to be a student of your calendar. And you say, okay, today's Monday, the day one. And within our five-year plan, we did everything we needed to do today to get there. Okay, now, how are we planning for tomorrow? Okay, now let's plan for Tuesday. Okay, great. Let's review Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Okay, we did that. Great. Now, let's have a great Tuesday. And you take it day by day and, you, and you're doing the specific and measurable leading activities that you need to do every single day to grow the business. And those can be tedious and they can be hard, 
but it's really, really important that it gets done. Well, it wouldn't surprise me to find out that some of your engagements, things are already on fire by the time someone gets in touch that it wasn't proactive. What is the evolution like to go from that to the more stable, well-planned out, discrete units of time planned? takes a lot less time than people think because I always tell my clients, uh, you're a lot closer to where you want to be than you think. The key is let's get there and then let's stay consistent so you don't fall back there. A lot of times it's, Hey, listen, Mr. and Mrs. Owner, you're not saying thank you to your people. You're not feeling, nobody feels appreciated. You don't have a business plan. Nobody knows the vision. You're not articulating anything, right? Nobody knows, you know, X, Y, and Z. So just let's clean this up. Let's tighten this up. It doesn't happen overnight, but let's tighten this up, right? Let's, and, 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 and we just look at every crevice of the business and we continue to grow. Well, COVID happened. That was a thing. And I think, that was you know, a thing. Yeah. kind of roll of the dice. Uh, some companies were harmed. Some, it was a, a natural transition. It's been a while now. I would hope most companies have adapted. Did you see any particular challenges in that process? For me or for companies? Well, both, I guess, are interesting. You know, my business grew the first two, three months of COVID, like everybody's business was kind of rattled. And then my business has continually grown from there because my business became more of a global business where doing Zooms and conference calls was the norm. And so there was, it was, it was actually, it worked well for my business because people needed a lot of coaching. They needed a lot of advising. They needed a lot of strategic discussion happening. And I think what happened with companies is they realized that they had never really talked about their plan B. You know, they had kind of been talking about this flex time or can people work from home and the millennials had really brought that to the table and it was very frustrating for older school employers but then COVID hit and then everybody had to work from home so everybody had to pivot and everybody had to get comfortable with technology and so today it's just as important you have to have your plan b and ready to evolve and pivot your business no matter what is comes what happens in front of us so so part of strategic planning today is thinking okay what's our plan b and what's our plan c if we need to if we need to do it and are we prepared are we prepared mentally do we have the technology in place right today if there is a lockdown which i pray there isn't but if there is another lockdown most companies are prepared for it right where people can now work from home and so i think it woke people up to realize we can't just be happy that things are great today. We always have to be prepared for a plan B. So companies uh, may have been great at culture and stuff in person. How well have you seen that successfully transition to being remote or hybrid? I think it was, it was tough for a lot of companies, Kyle. I think it was tough. Initially, I know when, when the pandemic hit almost, you know, what, 18, 19 months ago, I was doing a ton of kind of virtual keynotes on well-being and taking care of yourself and things of that nature. But I think companies have started to figure it out with, um, with morning huddles and more interaction and conversations and, and giving people specific and measurable things to do. I think the obstacle comes in are, especially for salespeople, where they're not out in the field as much, which is where they get their fuel and their energy. And managers can't walk and talk and, you know, stop in and have coffee with people because they're home 
And so that has to be via phone call and conference call and Zoom call, um, which in, in many cases, it's just not the same. But I think people are starting to get a little bit acclimated and hopeful that you know, as of late, I think COVID numbers are going down, that they'll be back to some type of normalcy sooner than later, where they can infuse that just people getting together. You know, I, I don't think, I think technology is amazing. I think Zoom is great and Teams is great and conference calls are great, but people need some interaction. Maybe not full time, that's up to different companies, but they need some level of interaction with people and specifically their clients. Have you observed anyone doing that exceptionally well that you could highlight either the place or some of the habits? I see a lot of people doing it well and a lot of clients that I have who are really doing it well. I can't name, I don't name any of my clients, so I can't be specific in that way. But I think the ones that are the most successful are the ones that understand that they need to give their people permission to take care of themselves, promote well-being, and the ones that are, you know, saying, hey, take care of yourself. This is no longer a nine to five job. And if you need to be with your family for two hours, you know, there's a level of soul understanding that companies have. And that shift, I think, is I think is great. This now because now you can you can be a mom or a dad and work from home and and be with your kids and sit down for dinner and and the companies that that embrace that element. And embrace that level of culture of work hard. Okay, you got to clock out at 3.30 and then you'll clock back in at 8 o'clock after your kids go to bed. It's great. That's the culture today has to move a little bit towards people's lifestyles versus people's lifestyles adjusting to people's work. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I've worked with a lot of software engineers who have entrepreneurial aspirations, or maybe everyone does on some level. But I guess when I think of people with a technical background, they want to be the CTO or technical co-founder in some regard. What should they be learning about or be ready for when they do want to take that plunge into starting a company? Yeah. Well, one, um, make sure that you have a business plan. Two, make sure that whatever company you're looking to start is a product or a service that people need, will buy, and know what they'll pay for it, at least initially. A lot of times people start a company and they don't know if people will actually buy it and if they'll actually pay for it. And so you got to understand what's your value prop, right? What are the benefits of your company, your product, your service? Why would people buy it? I work with people who are stuck. I get them unstuck. It's very easy to explain. So if somebody's in a business and they're stuck, I can get them unstuck. I can explain it to a kindergartner, a first grader, or a second grader, and they get it. And so I knew there was a market for it. And so, and, and I had an idea of what people would pay for it. And so you got to make sure that that is there. And I think also, you know, really paying attention that just because you think it's a great idea, asking a ton of people if they think it's not only a good idea, but um, where they see that two, three years from now. Because with any technology company, a lot of times, you know, you run the risk of becoming a commodity. And so I think it's fast. It's easier to become a commodity faster today than any other time in the world. I started an internet company in 1995. We sold it in 1997 and I was a partner for a couple of years. But, you know, I started when nobody even knew what a website was. And, and then it quickly became a commodity where you could, you could get a web page for $99 and, you know, this and the other. And, 
And then there was a time where people were just, you know, using that. But now I think people understand the customization of websites and marketing and post-COVID world. Like you need a, a, a dynamic website that works for you to grow your business. Absolutely. Well, when you meet companies that are stuck, is it ever because they have a competitor with an unfair advantage? Um, how do you mean? Well, maybe um, the reason my business isn't winning is because I'm doing something and uh, Walmart is my, turns out to be my biggest competitor or Amazon comes in and open sources the same thing for free. Uh, are people stuck for reasons like that or, or is it always something they can overcome? Well, if you're playing in that sandbox and you're starting something that Amazon, for example, could do for free or is going to get into that space you better have a niche that Amazon isn't niching into, I think, right? And I'm just using Amazon as an example. Sure, but, yeah. Um, but you just, that's why having a value prop in a niche is so important when it comes to technology, right? Because then you hope that the Amazons buy you, right? And so there's, there's intellectual capital of a niche of a specific idea that nobody, maybe anybody has, or a way to go about it that's so simple, where somebody says, ah, that was so simple, it's complicated. That was so simple, I can't believe I didn't come up with it. That was so simple, but the technology behind it is so difficult. We could reinvent the wheel, but now this company already has the simplicity and the brand because they've got a great name, a great tagline, a great marketing. They've gone out there and they've done it. I mean, you just look at like Dollar Shave Club, right? I mean, I mean, wow. I mean, you know, that's that's amazing. And, and then how they came. And so you got to really find not only the the company, but the personality and, and how you're going to build that brand and the niche element of something. Well, John, you're the host of the Think Business podcast. Tell listeners a little bit about what you get into there. Oh, I love I love that podcast. You know, I started that many years ago, and now I uh, turned it into a Monday through Friday live show. And on my podcast apps, I, I upload um, two episodes every single day. And um, I just have a ton of content and I just interview business, um, business people and, um, and thought leaders and people making a difference in the world. And we just talk about life and business and we get pretty deep in our 18 to 30 minute talks. And I love it. And so if somebody came to the business podcast, for example, if you download it on iTunes, you'll hear all the interviews. Plus, you'll, I have all these different episodes. I think of it kind of like a Netflix channel where you have a two-minute episode on business planning, a two-minute episode on uh, someone asking me a question and me answering it, a one-minute episode on you know just a, a business tip, and just tons of content so you can download it and absorb it. I'm auditory. I'm mostly auditory, so I, I learn from listening. So I want to pump out as much content as I can so people can listen and grow from uh, from Think Business. And what's the profile of a typical guest? The profile is typically somebody who is uh, an owner of a business or a leader within a business, but typically an owner of a business. And it can be anywhere between, again, solopreneur to Fortune 100 or 500 companies and everything in between. Well, very cool. Definitely some lessons to be learned there for sure. Yeah. John, where else can people follow you online? I appreciate that. Uh, my website is johndwaskin.com, J-O-N-D as in David, W-O-S-K-I-N, johndwaskin.com. You can get to all my social, all my tips, all my podcasts, everything from my website. And anybody can call me at 248-535-7796. I answer my own phone. 
And it's really important for me. I've got a big team of people that work for me so I can talk to people and work with people and do podcasts like this and, and, and do everything that I love to do. And so, yeah. So if anybody wants to connect with me, they can go to my website. They can email me at john at johnwaskin.com or, um, or just call me. Well, John, thanks so much for coming on to share your insights on software engineering daily. Thank you. I appreciate you having me on the show, Kyle. Thank you so much.